as he stumbled over the rocky, uneven ground. He walked through the darkness of that chilly, cloud-free night. There was a half moon that hung in the sky, casting just enough light for him to make his way from one campfire to the next. And there was a multitude of them scattered among the hills that would surround this valley of Allah. It had become the king's custom before battle. He would go around to each campsite the night before battle. And he would encourage and he would rally his men. And his soldiers loved him for it. Oh, they felt like he was just one of them. Only on this night, as he approached each campfire with groups of men huddled around warming their hands... Well, he had little to say. There wasn't a whole lot of words that he could offer for a situation like this. There's not a a whole lot that he could say by way of motivation. And as he approached the next campfire, the spirited discussion going on among the men suddenly came to a screeching halt. Oh, you could feel the awkwardness. King, jabbed his sword into the fire and pushed a few of the chunks of wood around. And then he pulled it out and he held it upwards. He let the red glow of the tip dimly light his face. And he said the only positive words he could think to say. Today's a, or tomorrow's a new day, gentlemen. We'll see what it has to bring. Only his men knew exactly what would be awaiting them come morning. The same thing that they had been facing the previous 39 days. The Philistines were camped out on the opposing hill of this small valley. And neither army could afford to give up the high ground. And so each morning the Philistines would march out their best warrior. He would stand at the edge of camp and he would yell over to the Israelites, send me your best. A fight to the death. Winner take all. His name was Goliath. He stood nearly nine feet tall. He had the body of the Hulk, only a little more of a dark tan rather than green. And for 39 days now, Israel had cowered in the face of his challenge. No one volunteered to fight, partially out of fear of the giant, but also because everyone in the camp of whose responsibility it was to fight. There had never been any dispute in Israel over who their best warrior was. It was the king, King Saul. And the Bible says that he stood head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. It was the main reason that he was chosen to be king. He was their strongest warrior, their best chance at victory. And up until this point, well, he had been their fearless leader. But during the days, 
Saul had been keeping to his tent. Out of sight of his men and out of earshot of the taunts of Goliath. His predicament was that he didn't want to lead his army into the low ground only to be slaughtered. And he also didn't want to go face that giant alone. And my bet is you're familiar with the story. Even if you've never opened a Bible before, you've probably heard of a David and Goliath type scenario. We'll use it in our sports vernacular all the time in order to describe a matchup where one of the teams has an unlikely chance of beating a much stronger opponent. Only the odds of this matchup You see, the the Philistine champion versus Israel's champion was never supposed to be so lopsided. Everyone in Israel's camp knew that the scheduled matchup was supposed to have been Saul versus Goliath, not David. And earlier that morning, before the sun had even crested up over the mountaintops, David's father had given him strict instructions to ride to the battlefields, to check out the army's progress, but even more importantly, to check on the health of his older brothers. See, David was the youngest boy in the family, and he wasn't of fighting age yet, and so his dad was really stern with him. Boy, you see any sign of trouble, and you turn right around, and you get home. And little did dad know that his youngest would disobey him on that day. And David arrived to the front lines. He heard the taunts of Goliath. And he had also overheard several of the men talking of the reward being offered by the king to anyone who was willing to take his place and fight. The pot had grown a little bigger with each passing week, and now, nearly a month in, the reward had grown to a large sum of cash, no taxes for life, and you'd get the king's daughter in marriage. And apparently, that was just enough to persuade young David to volunteer. He wasn't the best volunteer, he was just the only one. And you know the story. Against all odds of a shepherd boy, defeating what was then the ultimate fighting champion of the world. Well, David took that sling of his and he he swung it around his head. He hurled a rock that he had picked up from out of the creek bed and God allowed it to strike right in the center of the... And news of David killing Goliath and then the succeeding routes of the Philistine army. Well, it reached the the women and children back home. They lined the streets when their soldiers returned. They had a song all prepared for the occasion. The chorus sang, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Well, that wasn't music to Saul's ears. And this would be the turning point in Israel's history when power slowly began to shift from King Saul to what would eventually be King David. 
And it was God who was behind the power struggle. It was him beginning to take his kingdom back again. You see, 30 years earlier, the people, they had crowned Saul their king. But make no mistake, it was always God who's held the keys to his kingdom. When we rewind the story, we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we'll see representatives that are sent to the prophet Samuel, who was Israel's judge. Their nation had never been ruled like all the other nations around them. Israel was always led by those who were considered prophets, judges, sometimes even commanders. But all of those leaders understood that God was to give them their marching orders. You see, God was always to be the one true king of Israel. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you can flip there in, the, in your Bibles if you'd like. The people are going to voice their preference for a new political system. They didn't really mind God being involved so much as it meant his blessing. They just didn't want him sitting on the throne anymore. And so 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, you can follow along. Look, they told him, speaking to Samuel, you're, you're old. Your sons aren't like you. Give us a king to judge us just like all the other nations have. And Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they've continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but... Solemnly warn them about the way a king will rule over them. See, the question that they had likely been wrestling with for quite some time was, whose kingdom would be the most preferable to live in? God's or their own? And they had finally reached the conclusion that a kingdom made of their own will would be much more desirable. See, they found out what a lot of us may already know. It's that a lot of times doing things God's way can be tougher. Sometimes following where he leads can get mighty uncomfortable. It's what led them to prefer a kingdom where they could sort of assure themselves certain comforts and luxuries, and they assumed that a human king could better deliver. It's the same struggle that we'll always continue to face in our own lives. Whose kingdom are we serving? It's a question we face when we first give our lives to Jesus and we declare that he is Lord or he is king of our life. We got some young people that'll do that this morning. And even for the longtime Christian, 
Well, you know, there will always remain this tension. Serve God or ourselves. And here's the dirty little secret that no good follower of Jesus ever really likes to admit. It's in your notes. It's that we will have the most difficulty serving God when we don't feel it's mutually serving our own interests. <laughs> have you been there? When we feel that God has almost let us down because he hasn't delivered on what we felt was our best interest. God, whose side are you on here? How could you allow this to happen after I've been so faithful to you? Oh, see, we're so often to, to we're so often tempted to sort of flip the kingdom around and begin to desire that it serve us. Now, of course, we know that obedience to God will so often result in blessing. The Bible makes that pretty clear for us. But that blessing, well, it doesn't always come in the time frame that we would like it. And it doesn't always look like we expected it. And sometimes what we think we want doesn't quite line up with what God knows we need. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, Jesus, Jesus <clears throat> was always speaking of people's need for the kingdom of God. In fact, he would begin so many of his parables by saying, the kingdom of God or heaven is like this. But even his closest followers, the disciples, they sometimes had a difficult time, you know, seeing what was in it for them. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, after Jesus had spoken to his disciples about the sacrifice that God's kingdom would require, both of his followers and then, of course, especially of himself, there were two brothers, James and John who decided that they needed to speak privately with Jesus. And so they finally found their moments. They pulled him aside. They said, hey, Jesus, listen, this conversation just stays between us, all right? Bless a favor. Promise us you'll do this one thing. Jesus says, well, that, that depends, of course. What you have in mind? One of the brothers says, listen, when it comes to however your kingdom is going to be, just promise us this. You'll give us the two highest ranking positions in the kingdom. Jesus says, oh man, are you kidding me? That, that is what this is all about. You two don't even know what you're asking. They say, oh yeah, we do. We ran this idea by mom. She's in on it too. It's a good one. And in Mark, in 1041, it says then that the 10 other disciples, now they heard what James and John had asked, and they were in. 
indignant. And it wasn't because they just couldn't believe that James and John would make such a request. It was really because they just couldn't believe that they hadn't thought of asking first. The Bible says that for quite some time, they had actually all been arguing amongst themselves over how Jesus was ranking them as disciples. You know, like who was the most important? Disciple 1 through 11. Of course, Peter was like the biggest screw-up of the group. So they all just assume Peter's got to be 12. But 1 through 11, it feels up for grabs. And so James and John, they just sort of take matters into their own hands. Hey, Jesus, listen. If we follow you, promise us you'll give us what we want. I don't know about you. But there have been times when I have been reminded of things that I thought I really wanted when I was younger. Even some of the prayers that I would pray. And I am so thankful now (laughs) that God didn't answer those prayers exactly as I had wanted him to. The truth is that God knows what's best for me even more than I know myself. And I think that a lot of growing in our faith is learning to trust more and more that God really does know best. It's the reason that we will always be better off serving his purposes and his kingdom above our own. Oh, but you couldn't have convinced Israel of that at the time. For you see, they, well, they wanted their king. And the irony in it is going to be that what they thought was going to bring them a whole lot of freedom, you know, free from like rules and free to to pursue their own desires is actually going to bring them so much more bondage. It's why God says to the prophet Samuel, hey, just warn them, warn them what the king's going to do. We find a bit of that description in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11, if you still got your Your bookmark's there. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains. Some will be forced to plow his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you, force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for them. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves, and he'll give them to his own officials. See, the great irony in this warning is that the people looked forward to a king that was going to serve their interest. But here you have the king that's going to make sure that the people are serving his. This is God's warning just of our human nature. That there is just something within our hearts that when left unchecked is so prone to selfishness, and to sin. 
It's why we need to undergo a heart transformation at the heart of God or at the hands of God. So next fill in the blank there. Whose heart are we pursuing? Because as God shifted the power from King Saul to King David, the determining factor of the two men seemed to be their heart. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel the prophet, he gives Saul a rebuke for not fully following God's instruction. And this is what he says. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. And that man, of course, would be David, who would become known as a man after God's own heart. It's repeated then several times throughout Scripture. But yet it wasn't said of him because he always did the right thing. Some of his sinful choices would lead to some self-inflicted consequences in his life and then also for the nation. But whenever it was that, that David messed up, you know, he was always really quick to call it sin and to recommit then his heart to God. And so even though at times he would give in to some of those selfish temptations that he had, we see in his life that his overriding motivation was always to draw closer to God. And when it comes to our heart, well, motivation is everything, isn't it? So much so that, you know, I would, I would venture to guess that quite often, God may not care quite as much about what we do as much as he would care about why we do it. That's really getting to the heart of the matter. For example, when one of my kids will come to me and they come to tattle on the other. You know, I have a very difficult time expressing a whole lot and what they may be saying may be completely valid. It's just that I don't like their motivation in telling me. And you know what they do? They, they put on this great dramatic performance. And they will feign their deep concern for the safety and sometimes even the moral well-being of their brother or sister. But I know what their real motivation is. Oh, see, they're looking for that moment when they get to walk up to the other and they get to give that little smirk. I told you so. <laughs> motivation matters, doesn't it? Or you know the feeling when your kids have done something obviously wrong and so you take that moment to teach a little, a little moral principle in there. And you, and you tell them that it would be a good idea to go and apologize to the person that they have offended. And so you watch them take their, your instructions to heart. And they go up to them. And they say, 
sorry. <sighs> I mean, to apologize is good, but not with that attitude. Because motivation matters. And so it would be good for us to evaluate our heart as well. What in our heart of hearts is mostly motivating us in life? David was led to do this so often through prayer, and he would do so through the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 26.2, he would write, Put me on trial, Lord, and cross-examine me. Test my motives and my heart, for I am always aware of your unfailing love, and I've lived according to your truth. The Psalms give us this great peek into David's prayer life because he would write at least half of them, we know. And of those, the majority of them he would write within this 22-year time span of when God first told him that he would become king and then when he finally would be kinged or crowned Israel's king. And in those psalms, we see David continuously use that period of time in order to grow closer in his relationship with God. See, our hearts are only ever truly transformed through relationship. (laughs) And my guess is that God needed all of those 22 years just to get David's heart prepared to lead. To get David's heart aligned with his and get him to the place where David might be able to internally say, all right, your will, not mine. God, this is your kingdom, not mine. Our hearts are transformed to be more like God's only through our relationship with him. And so how are we intentionally then investing in that relationship? Quite a few people who have said before that um, maybe God was the one who really got their intention and, and maybe pursued relationship with them. But I've never met anyone who said, you know, I've grown really close to God by accident. I mean, I didn't really mean to. It just sort of happened. See, if we don't mean to, we become as Saul. Because what's really fascinating about Saul is that his reign as king actually began really well. And it's because in 1 Samuel chapter 10, it actually says that God, when he anointed him king, he gave him a new heart that day. The problem was that during Saul's nearly 40-year reign, he never really concerned himself so much in developing that heart that God had given him. In fact, Saul, most of the time, seemed content to sort of let the prophet Samuel deal with the God stuff so that he could just be freed up to lead the kingdom. And it resulted in Saul's mentality 
that it was his kingdom. And so over his reign, his heart would become progressively less and less aligned with the heart of God. Whose heart are we pursuing? And then next, what purpose are we fulfilling? A few weeks ago, my daughter had her 11th birthday party. And for a party, she wanted her and her friends to be sent out on an epic scavenger hunt. And so me and my wife, we took a a group of six, so you can imagine, just sort of scatterbrained and giggling girls. We took them to the mall where we handed them a long list of things to find, buy, or do within a time limit. And of course, of course, well, there had to be photographic evidence on a cell phone that they had actually completed each task. And so we then let them loose, and we would, you know, kind of follow behind, and we would watch from a distance. And at one point on their list was to find an ugly sweater and have one of the girls put it on, you know, model it and take a picture. And so one of the girls at that point exclaimed, we need to go in there. And she pointed towards uh, one of the smaller stores in the mall that will go unnamed because some of you may do your shopping there. (laughs) But according to my daughter and her friends, it's an old lady's store. And listen, as fate would have it, when they approached the entrance to the store, there stood a very nice old lady who was working there. And she was obviously, uh, you know, very, I thought it was very funny, just the sight of six giggly girls. And so she asked them very politely, very nicely, can I help you girls with something? And that's when one of the girls just obliviously blurts out, we're here to find an ugly sweater. (laughs) And then to make matters worse, one of the girls held up one of the sweaters next to the front window, because it's most likely one of their most popular styles, and says, look at this one. It is so ugly. And as my wife and I just watched this whole scene unfold, you know, I mean, the only thing that we can do is just put our head in our hands, pretend we don't know who those girls belong to. (laughs) And I'd like to assume that my daughter would normally maybe use a little more discretion, but you see, at the time, well, the girls were just so focused on their objective that they were oblivious to anything else. What objective or purpose in our life are we so focused on that we can't be distracted from it? Our culture will so often encourage us to be narrow-mindedly focused on such things as maybe building wealth or rising in status or authority. 
Maybe it's making a name for yourself. But Jesus teaches us to mainly be concerned of things that have to do with the kingdom of God. His purposes. So much so that he would tell us to pray for it. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, he, in his model prayer, you probably remember what it says. He says, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And perhaps the most amazing part of God's kingdom is that God allows his followers to play such an important role. When it comes to making his kingdom known to the world, his plan is us. Now, I am not one to normally criticize God, but it seems like a pretty foolish plan to me. Have you met us? And so when we speak to someone about the hope that we can find in God, well, it's ushering in his kingdom. And it will also, also hopefully be that others will experience a bit of God's kingdom through us just by being around us. That they will have felt nearer to God because of what we did or maybe the way that we made them feel because it was a great reflection of God's heart for them. And of course, the kingdom of God will be fully realized when we get to be physically with him in heaven. But Jesus also declares that the kingdom of God is near us now. In fact, when he very first began his ministry, back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says this, or the time promised by God has come. At last, he announced, the kingdom of God is near. See, despite faithfulness to God in the Old Testament, God always remained faithful to his people, continuing to move forward this plan of redemption that we see in the Bible through first his promised covenants with Abraham and then Moses, and after God's people had rejected him as king, they endured then the rule of Saul. God raised up David to be king. And it was in order to be a better reflection of God's heart and rule for his people. And David was, in fact, a great king. In fact, he would be measured against all the other kings as sort of the standard to be held to. And yet he was also far from perfect. His, occasion, his occasionally disobedience to God, which would go on to affect the entire nation, would leave God's people still longing and waiting for a perfect king. Because it says back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it was prophesied that through David's family line that God would raise up one of David's descendants to secure the throne forever. 
God declared that this king's rule would have no end. And God's people would be secure and they would live at peace in the kingdom forever. And this promised king who the Israelites then just began to refer to as the Messiah. Well, he was going to restore the world to the way that God had always meant it to be before sin entered the world in the second page of the Bible. And if we had been a good Jewish boy or girl back then. Well, then the birth announcement of Jesus would have just sent shivers down our spine. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, this is the baby announcement. The angel appeared to Mary and said, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He'll be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And today, we get to see, experience a bit of that kingdom and be ushered into it. It's one of the things that we actually do each week through communion. We do communion each week here at Journey. And it would be when we sort of, in a sense, declare our allegiance to the King, Jesus. We would declare that he is Lord and King of our life. And we do that by holding just a, a little cracker and a piece of juice, which are just symbolic of Jesus' blood and his body, and we say thank you. Oh God, thank you for the sacrifice that you have made for the kingdom. Allowing a way for us to be forgiven of our sins, our relationship with you restored. The kingdom. This morning, I'll pray and then you'll have a moment to do that. If you would like to do that this morning, you can sit quietly just on your own with the bread and the cracker. And maybe this morning, as you would reflect upon that sacrifice that Jesus has made for you and for me and made for the kingdom. Maybe you would speak to him about the kingdom that you've been serving. Maybe it's the hearts that you've been developing. Maybe it's the purposes that you've been fulfilling. Oh, may we be able to pray a prayer like David would do throughout the Psalms, where he would say such things as, examine me, O Lord. Oh, test my heart and test my motives so that I may be more aligned with you. Pray with me, and then you can grab those elements if you would like. We're going to do song, and then we'll celebrate with, uh, with some young people who are declaring Jesus their king this morning. Lord, thank you, God, just for your word. And we thank you for the sacrifice that you have made. We celebrate that now through communion as we quietly just hold those elements in our hand, and we reflect upon what the kingdom means to us. We thank you for the eventual eternity secure, eternal security that we have with you in heaven. But Lord, we pray that now, 
God, as your spirit would be with us and indwell our lives, that, that we and even others near us would experience, just as Jesus would speak of, the kingdom of God. Lord, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, amen.